Hi, everybody. It's Charlie, and uh, it's the welcome back to um, this podcast, which is called To Hell and Back. Uh, I think this is the 20th one. I was looking at my archive of these. Unbelievable. And I was listening to this one, as I often listen to them afterwards and try to have to overcome every time hearing my own voice. But uh, I'll go ahead anyway, because I, it's the only one I've got. Um, so today is going to be part two of a conversation that I started last time in podcast number 19 with Natalia Garcia. And for those of you who didn't listen last time, I highly recommend it, but I'll just give you a brief summary so you know what you're, where this is coming from. So there's a noise outside my window. Sorry about that. Um, Natalia is a sixth-year grad student in psychology at University of Washington. Um, her special interests have uh, had to do with trauma, stress, uh, PTSD, recovery, um, and she's uh, worked for um, 18 months in Marsha Linhan's lab in doing a practicum, learning DBT and, and seeing clients. And uh, an important mentor of hers is a previous guest on this program, Melanie Harned, who developed DBT with prolonged exposure for PTSD. Um, last week, Natalia told us about the traumatic morning in her life of September 20th, just last year, uh, when she and her husband, Brian, came in to wake up their healthy two-year-old son, Jackson, only to find that he was dead. Um, we've been talking about that uh, horrible, shocking experience and how she's been recovering since then. Um, the, the, the idea of the program being to be in search of ways for people to cope with various forms of hell in their lives, and that was certainly one. Um, and uh, in her case, also to cope with just the extraordinary shock of that discovery um, and 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 then coping with her thoughts afterwards like um, this can't possibly be um, this is too young this is not right I, how could this be I can't make it I'm not going to make it and those kind of thoughts that are sort of natural to have is that how do you contend with those um, she spoke about some really amazingly interesting things like how the grief process for her, as painful as it's been and continues to be, that it, it's felt like she's engaging in a very natural process of grieving that we humans seem to have as part of our biological legacy, that we can grieve. And you can, in a way, part of the problem is just getting out of the way of that and so that we allow ourselves to recover um, we and, and she can say anything more about any of these uh, that she wants we spoke about the complicated uh, matter of how when you're you've had something traumatic happen like that or some terrible loss that you then actually can in many cases not every case but can go on functioning and even appear to people to be functioning, which is sometimes shocking to people. How can this person be functioning after going through that? And everybody thinks, God, if it was me, I wouldn't be able to function. I, I wouldn't be able to go to work. I wouldn't be able to continue. And, I, I, and, and yet it's often the case that people do, and yet it makes it more complicated for people to function while being in such pain um, because uh, somehow it seems like it shouldn't be happening, and uh, as if you're invalidating your own experience, and then people sometimes don't know how to react to that. So she was talking about that um, complicated matter because she has continued to function, and, and, and listening to her last week when I'm talking to her, is she remains uh, so thoughtful, articulate, and everything, and um, so it's kind of like, wow, um, um, but, you know, and, and then another matter that came up, and she and I talked some about that this morning, is the shock she talked last time about and, and made in one sentence that I sort of hung on to. She distinguished between the traumatic shock of, of a sudden unexpected discovery like that versus the loss. 
which is a, in some ways, you know, a longer process uh, that involves grieving, but it isn't the same as the shock. And I was thinking about that and, and realizing that, um, um, you know, there's a whole there's a whole matter of the shock itself, which sends ripples out through your life. And in some cases, that continues and continues as intrusive memories and uh, flashbacks and uh, 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 nightmares and all kinds of uh, interruptive things like that in your life as you continue to try to come to terms with it. Um, but that actually what Natalia was telling me is that the research and, and studies on this make it pretty clear that... Um, this kind of recovery from the shock tends to happen naturally in a trajectory of three to six months or so. Um, and then, of course, there's still, after that, after the shock and coping with the shock of it all, is the matter now of coming to terms with the way one's life has changed. Um, and uh, so that's where we're picking up now. And uh, also there was one more uh, thing that... Um, Natalia talked about uh, uh, last time that we're going to hopefully get back to is um, the importance of one's social support system. Um, in her case, it's been very important, and she has thoughts and has given some really disciplined thinking about um, how to shape your own social support system in response to your loss or trauma, um, which I think is going to be incredibly important. So. Welcome, Natalia. Thank you for coming back again. Thank you so much, Charlie. It's an honor to be back. Great. And and, and by the way, everybody, uh, I asked Natalia, if, given there's so much to talk about, if she can come back for a third time next week, and she has agreed to do that. So just so you know that, um, we're going to continue this discussion then. But Natalia, I'm going to start with a tough question. I mean, not, maybe, maybe it's not tough in terms of the content of how, what to say, but I think it's, pain, it's, it's a painful question, I would think, is that I wonder if you can say something about um, the changes you've had to deal with. Um, I started thinking about it thinking, God, it must change your entire life this whole last eight months, just everything being different every day, every morning, every night, and everything. And I, so I, I'm wondering not to hear that just for the sake of hearing it, but as part of hearing how you've been attempting to cope with all the reminders uh, of, of such a profound loss. Yeah, it's a good question. And, um, you know, given that Jackson was our only child, um, our lives changed so dramatically overnight, literally overnight, um, in that it felt for weeks that our life was just unrecognizable from what it was before. Um, and I felt for a while that I had this sort of internal clock or something um, that hadn't quite caught up with the events and the news of what had happened. What I mean by that is it was really... Um, I don't know, I was very painfully aware of, you know, every meal that lapsed, every nap time that lapsed, every bath time that lapsed. It was mm. like some part of my body just hadn't quite adjusted to the change that had occurred, and I was still mm. expecting to see those things. I would be driving in my car and look in the rearview mirror expecting to see Jackson in his car seat and then to not see him there. It was really... Um, oh, boy. It, it was really intense at first, and of course now it's been eight months or so, and, um, you know, we've resumed some sense of normalcy. Obviously, there's no way to return to our old lives, um, but we have resumed a sense of day-to-day that is less shocking in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do have to credit um, approach as a concept um, to what has helped me to do that. Um, What I mean by approach is essentially the opposite of avoidance, which I know that... um, Melanie spent a good amount of time talking about in her uh, episodes uh, with you a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that was, um, that was foundational for me, and, and hopefully we get to social support as well today. But those are the two big things that I, that I think I, I majorly credit um, for how we got through those, those early days, those early weeks. Um, and um, I'll just start by saying that this is actually what I study. Like you said, I um, sort of specialize in, in 
PTSD and trauma and, and, and recovery. Um, and so for me, this is kind of the bread and butter of what I study is avoidance. Um, mm. And so I was very grateful after losing Jackson to have this as part of my background or my training um, so that I could kind of be on the lookout for it, um, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll start so by saying, yeah. So you're saying that the two big things, sort of like topics for us, um, that spread out in front of us would be um, how you've approached mm-hmm. rather than avoided um, something about this loss and also um, how you've managed or what how your social support system has been helpful. Yes, and how those sort of interact even in helping um, mm. social support uh, systems to help me in my um, in my mission to to kind of lead this more approach lifestyle instead of the avoidance lifestyle that is so understandable after a trauma happens because the reality is avoidance um, to a trauma reminder or a situation or anything that that takes you back is so common and understandable. Uh, In the very short term, it reduces our fear, our anxiety when we avoid or escape reminders. Um, It's it's a really, really natural... um, Response to being reminded of something really awful that that feels very painful to remember. Uh, we also know, though, that in the long run, sort of persistent avoidance of you know non-dangerous trauma reminders can actually lead to problems downstream, namely PTSD. Um, and so, as Melanie described in her podcast, we know that avoidance can really get in the way of recovery because what happens is it prevents corrective learning that is really important for processing the trauma, for getting oneself out of that shock. Um, so I think that that was a really important thing for me to keep in mind. Hmm. What do you um, mean, collective yeah. learning? Corrective. Corrective, learning. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think of it as kind of this this approach mindset um, helps people to get kind of back into the driver's seat with their lives. So, you know, instead of having fear and avoidance running your life, dictating where you go, who you see, what you talk about, how you remember things, um, really doing the opposite of that and and learning to approach, obviously, non-dangerous reminders um, gives you some ability to reclaim control in your life. And I think that that was really, really important for us. And again, establishing this, this new normal of whatever this new life is for us. Um, you, and we did, know, did you yeah. find yourself avoiding things? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The urge to avoid is so, so strong. Um, I have, I, I could just list off so many things that I felt like avoiding. I remember the, the morning that he died, I was outside um, when the police arrived and the, like I said, the firefighters and the paramedics and everybody. Um, and I was outside on the lawn and I just remember my husband coming over to me. And the very first thing I said to him was, there's no way I'm ever going to step foot back in that house. Mm. I was so clear that I would never be able to be back in the house. And of course mm. this is, we're talking, you know, within the hour after this happened. Yes. Um, and we had just bought our house actually, um, oh. go figure about a month before, um, Jackson died, and and I was so sure there was no way I was ever going to be able to step foot in the house again. No no way that I'd be able to look at his toys again, watch videos of him, look at photos of him. It was so 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 oh, painful. Right. Um, mm. And I think that that urge to avoid is so so natural because these are really painful cues. Um, so it, it is this very intentional thing to kind of do the opposite of that urge to avoid, and and that approach mentality takes a lot of courage and. And can be a little counterintuitive to what your body's telling you to do. You know, unlike what we talked about earlier, where again, I, I believe that there is this sense of natural recovery, and our bodies know what to do. Um, I have to say that the urge for me and for a lot of people is get me away from this reminder. I don't want to. I don't want to dive into the deep, deep sadness or deep, deep fear that exists when I think about this. So it is really, really common. Um, but it was nice to have the knowledge that I have about avoidance and approach kind of in my back pocket to sort of guide me in living that exposure lifestyle and really avoid succumbing to the, what can be life destroying avoidance patterns. Um, Mm -hmm. Now look, I said something last week and I'm tempted to say a similar thing, but it's about, it's about this, but which was different. It was last time you said something about the kind of thoughts that you had to come to terms with um, that were catastrophic kinds of thinking, which, 
I said when you said that that you had to come to terms with it. I thought, what do you mean come to terms with it? I see that sounds very real. It sounds correct to me. And and yeah. and I want to say about this that um, the urge to get away from those things, uh, as much as grieving may be a natural biologically informed process, I think that the urge to get away from things is probably also a natural, in, you know, biologically informed process. And I'm just wondering. Um, and you, I can see the value of both, but how soon did you start to try to get yourself deliberately to um, uh, go against the urge to avoid? And, and, yeah. what, and what do you think you've learned from that about how soon one should? Yeah, it's a good question, and I want to speak briefly to what you just said because it's a really important point, which is that avoidance as an urge itself is actually really adaptive, and it's something that is hardwired along with everything else that's resilient about the way we react as a species mm-hmm. to threat. Um, and and it's it's really normal and very very adaptive when you are. It's a program for escaping danger or threat. What becomes problematic about avoidance isn't just that we have avoidance, but when we start to avoid things that are not objectively dangerous, but that simply remind us of something that is very, very painful. Mm-hmm. And in the immediate aftermath, I think, um, you know, we give ourselves a little bit of grace period. Um, if anything, for me, because of the training that I have, I was almost a little bit too eager to like jump right in, but I actually had to remind myself, it's okay to, to give yourself a little bit of a grace period. You don't have to do this immediately right away for every cue that's out there. Um, but it was something that I had on my radar and then mm-hmm. I noticed opportunities mm-hmm. for this. And actually the very first time that I really thought to myself, I need to do an exposure, um, was probably about a couple of weeks after Jackson died. We were actually back in our house, which I guess is an exposure in and of itself, um, but more by... Well, by the way, are you still in the same house? I am in the same house. Okay. Yeah. And I have to say, as of about three weeks ago, um, we decided to leave Jackson's bedroom door open. It's something Mm. that we've kind of opened, closed at different times. So um, even within the same, you know approach behavior of even living in our house, there's different degrees of how you go about living in one's house sure. uh, in that way. But um, it was mm. probably about two weeks after Jackson died that um, I did my first exposure. And I knew it was needed because I was sitting on the couch talking with Brian, and I just broke down into tears. And um, and he was comforting me. And what I told him was at the root of my suffering, as I said, I don't think I'll ever be able to watch a video of Jackson again. And mm. that was so, so sad for me. And, mm. and I said, I just know if I hear his voice, I'm just going to like self-implode with grief and never come out of it. Yeah. And the moment I heard myself saying those words out loud, I heard the voice of my clients. I heard the voice of people who I know who have struggled with PTSD after trauma. And that was the moment I said, oh my gosh, I know exactly what I need to do. I I need to watch a video. Mm. Um, I needed the corrective learning that I could handle it, that it wouldn't kill me, that I wouldn't self-implode. And to get me to a place where I could get to watch videos of Jackson with less distress, which now is such a gift. And I think such a special thing that I still have and still get to do and it would be such a shame to not have that Mm. so that was sort of the rationale in my head but I have to say just because I had a rationale doesn't mean it was easy in fact um we had we had a really hard time doing this um my heart was just pounding in my chest I'll I'll never forget how that felt it just Mm. I thought I could see it coming out of my chest and I was Mm. filled with the most indescribable I don't know dread and it felt like every part of my body was just saying no. And yet I knew it was something that was important to do and that I wanted to do. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I did it. And we had a few false starts. Um, first it was getting out the phone and opening the photo app. And then I just saw the still image, you know, with the play button ready to go mm-hmm. and felt massive urges to escape. I just wanted to run away, put away the phone, just tell him I changed my mind. And I definitely could have done those things. Um, I don't think I had to do the exposure in that moment and it would have been okay to delay it for a while. But I, I just felt this strong commitment to following through because I knew that this Fear that was underlying this avoidance was tormenting me, and it didn't have mm-hmm. to torment me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was what got me. That's what gave me the courage to keep doing it. 
And Mm -hmm. when I finally did it, actually, Brian was the one that hit play. What first happened almost confirmed my fear. I let out just the hugest, most visceral sob, and I felt grief permeate through my entire body just Mm. hearing his sweet voice. And I absolutely did fill up with grief, but I did not self-implode with grief, and it did not last forever. And in fact, I actually noticed that as I was watching the video, I was smiling through the crying, and that as soon as the video was over, I told him, play it again. <laughs> I just didn't oh, want really? it to stop. Yeah. yeah, and watched it a handful of times. And did there you was want definitely to see it again, sadness. or that, did that come from your kind of academic? No, I wanted to see it again. It was a surprising it was a surprising reaction. I wasn't expecting to feel that, but I was like, you know, I was like, I want to see it again. And, and there was sadness for sure. But like I said, it was, it was both. It was like smiling to hear his sweet voice. I hadn't heard in two weeks, the longest I had gone, not hearing his voice, but also, also sadness. But I had, I felt this sense of conquering the fear and it took doing it several times and over the course of several days. Um, but what I learned was that alongside the predictable sadness, there was that loveliness in hearing his voice. And like I said, I learned that it didn't kill me. I didn't self-implode the way I very realistically thought I would, which sounds a little bit dramatic, but it really was that intensive fear. Mm -hmm. And I think the most important thing, I learned that I could tolerate the distress. It really did happen. I did get distressed, but I obtained the reward of hearing his voice again. And Mm. so this was just a huge gift. And for me, really set up this, this trajectory for like, okay, approach is helping me right now. You know, I'm just thinking how um, it just, it keeps going through my brain. I'm thinking, God, how soon that was um, yeah. when I think about it. It's just like almost right afterwards, like two weeks later. And um, and then it raises the question for me. Um, I mean, obviously, I think it was right for you. You show incredible courage and the ability to do that and and to tell us kind of uh, what the value was, I think is fantastic. Um, but I wonder also with different people, mm-hmm. whether you know also whether there's kind of a timing issue. Mm-hmm. Um, of doing things like that. I mean, you know, uh, certainly the treatment of PTSD that Melanie talked about on this podcast was about, you know, included imaginal exposure and in vivo exposures to cues that are associated with a traumatic incident. And and um, that's happened after some time that PTSD has settled, and that's part of the treatment. But what's the, is it, would you say the timing for other people? I mean, well, I'll just say on the other side of the equation, I'm thinking about... I considered going down to um, 9-11 in New York after it happened, and a lot of people did. A lot of mental health types went down and tried to help out, and then there was a lot of uh, writing about that and so on, and about other traumatic uh, large events affecting lots of people and how there's a way in which, depending how you do it, um, you can do some things too early. Um, in trying to help people come to grips with that initial trauma without yet having PTSD. So could you just talk a little, because I think a lot of people who might listen to this uh, might be trying to apply this to events from their own lives in the past or the present. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really good I question. Be, should I be approaching all of these things mm-hmm. I've been avoiding? Mm-hmm. It's, it's such a good question. It's one of timing. and um, So I would say um, basically... The idea of exposure or approaching things that you're avoiding, mm-hmm. um, approaching non-dangerous things that you're avoiding, um, is something that you can benefit from at any time. So whether you are three months out from a trauma, one year out from a trauma, 30 years out from a trauma, these are pretty robust um, experiences and and I think that avoid I'm sorry approaching avoided things or doing exposure um, can be really really helpful um, that entire timeline so the the tricky part is is when to start it and you're asked the question of yeah. can it be too soon so there's some evidence you know on, on the flip side that doing anything that interferes with the natural recovery process 
um, is not indicated. So there's some um, critical incident stress debriefing, um, you know, uh, protocols that some places have that have not really been shown actually to be particularly helpful after a trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, in the immediate, immediate ad- aftermath, it's kind of like a group setting debriefing style. And if anything, it's been shown to be sort of not effective or possibly even iatrogenic or making things worse. Um, so I think that's kind of what you're referring to, that sometimes doing these sorts of things too early can be problematic. Um, I would say that that is specific to, we don't know exactly why it is that CISD, critical incident stress debriefing, is um, potentially not helpful, but I'm guessing it has to do a little bit with forcing people to um, go through and um, uh, process their trauma potentially before they're ready in a group setting. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be my guess. But doing the principles of natural recovery or therapeutic recovery, which involve exposure, um, mm-hmm. obtaining social support, um, making meaning out of the trauma. I don't necessarily think there's a time that it's too early. What I would caution against is people going after PTSD treatment before they've allowed natural recovery to have a chance. Mm-hmm. So we don't yeah. typically recommend that somebody go to PTSD treatment if they're one month out from the trauma, because yeah. there's a really good chance actually that they will recover on their own. Um, but usually, like you said, somewhere around a three-month mark, and definitely by a one-year mark, if someone's not naturally recovering, we would suggest that they pursue some sort of treatment. You know, and it just occurs to me as I listen to you respond to me that um one of the things that might have made it so workable for you is that is one of the main principles of doing exposure that, that includes allowing the person to determine when they do it and what the pace is mm-hmm. and whether it's in their control. And this was clearly within your control to do it. So even though you were white-knuckling it through that experience, it wasn't somebody else who was telling you to do it. Exactly. This was very much um, consensual and um, driven by, yes, I was afraid, but I really wanted to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's important. Um, and, you know, I think it's also important that even though, you know, we can be very much advocates of approach, 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 there are definitely situations where doing the exposure might not necessarily be indicated. Um, mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's hard to figure that one out. And my rule of mm-hmm. thumb is I ask myself, you know, is what I'm avoiding getting in the way of my life because there's plenty of things that we avoid, but they don't really get in the way of our lives. And so if it's not causing that impairment, then it may not be something that we totally have to approach head on. Um, There's plenty of things, actually, I still haven't approached. For example, um, there's a certain Greek restaurant that Jackson really likes to go to. Um, He loved the Euros, and um, we haven't been back there. But I know that if I wanted to go back there or needed to go back there, that I could. Mm. Um, I have the confidence that I could because of all the other exposures that I've sort of. Um, well, that brings been doing. up one of the things that you mentioned in an email to me, which is that um, you don't necessarily have to go every, do everything. Mm-hmm. And I think Melanie made the same point. You don't necessarily have to revisit every single trauma to be helpful to them. So this is just a fabulous example of that, that the things you've already managed to go through make it so that you have the confidence that you could go through some Mm -hmm. of the other ones you haven't done. That's already like a big deal. Yes, and that learning sort of generalizes. So you increase the sense of mastery that you can tolerate things, um, that mm-hmm. the, the stress isn't as big as you would expect it to be, or if it is, that you can handle it. Um, and I think that that learning kind of permeates and, and spreads even farther than, you know, discrete exposures. So you don't have to hit every single thing. Um, and And yet there are some things that really do need an explicit exposure. So, you know, for me, I wanted to be able to watch videos of Jackson, so I was going to have to do that. Um, the other big one for me was being able to park at work, which sounds so super unrelated to losing Jackson, but the, the uh-huh. connection there is that I used to drop him off at daycare, which was right by my office. Oh. And there was this big parking structure where we would park together, and then I would walk him to the elevator, and we'd take the elevator right down to daycare. I'd drop him off, and then I'd walk to work. Right. So at first, the thought of having to park in that garage without Jackson, with, 
with my empty car and just right. walk straight to my office instead was more intolerable than I can even communicate. It was it was such a painful thought that I would have to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And and I realized that this was going to be functionally impairing. I needed to get to work. I needed to be able to park. And actually, some people suggested, well, maybe get a new parking garage. Um, and I thought about it. I thought, okay, well, if my goal is to get back to work, that would suffice. Um, I could do that, but it's many blocks away. It's kind of inconvenient. And it would also mean I missed out on that extra corrective learning that I could tolerate even some of the hardest cues. So I thought, okay, I'm going to confront this one. And, you know, at first it was, you know, little things like just getting myself near the garage, um, driving with company. I used to go with my husband. He used to come to work with me kind of like those first few days. He works remotely so he could come to my office with me. I have um, a really good friend, Rosie, who would often come with me. I'd pick her up at her house and we'd park together and walk to the lab together. And that helped me with my initial goal of being able to park in the garage. But I also did that being very aware that I was using, quote-unquote, what we refer to as safety signals, which are kind of controversial in our field, it's these things that you do during the exposure that can be problematic when overused because then your corrective learning becomes sort of contingent on basically having your friend there or in classic PTSD examples, having your anti-anxiety meds in your pocket or carrying a weapon or something like that. Wearing the correct socks. Exactly, yeah, yeah. In order to face a difficult day. Totally. And I wanted to be able to park in the garage regardless of whether my husband or Rosie were with me. You know, what if Rosie was sick one day? Would I be able to get to work? So I was mindful of those sort of baby steps, using them essentially as warm-ups. But I knew eventually I'd have to wean myself off of them and and really get to the place where I am now, which is I park there every day with very minimal distress. I do feel sadness sometimes. Sometimes I park next to a car where I see a car seat in the back or run into an old daycare family or a teacher or something that reminds me of what the past life was. Um, Mm -hmm. But importantly, I know I can handle it and I have Mm -hmm. gained a lot of mastery from doing things like this. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking thinking it's such hard work what you're talking about. Um, Not that I don't think, you know, it's a good idea to be up for it, but it's such hard work. And um, what... Um just wondering how, you know, I'm thinking of people I know or whether it's patients or friends or colleagues and family members. And I think it's so natural more to stay away from these things um, mm-hmm. for periods of time, more, much more than that. And maybe um, it does sound like this is an area where because you knew that this was a way that maybe you could help yourself that you, you, know, you could with more confidence engage in going at things that you would really prefer to go away from. Um, and, um, and I'm thinking, well, so what would I tell somebody about why do this? Why make yourself more miserable uh, when you could relieve yourself by going the other way? And I, I guess I would say what you're saying is, well, because you're going to want to, you don't want to um, narrow your life. Exactly. You don't want to narrow the domains of your life and say, well, I can't go to that parking garage anymore. We have to move to another house. So we, I can't look at these videos, which I, which would be very meaningful to me to look at. I mean, so that would be one whole set of things about, well, because you don't want to avoid things because then once you start down the path of avoiding, you might continue to avoid. But let me ask you this. Do you think that it also helps or not so much with actually feeling better? Oh, Absolutely. And not immediately, because usually this is very common when you expose yourself to one of these cues that you clearly have an urge to avoid. There will likely be distress. In fact, that corrective learning sort of relies on the fact that there is distress, because in the presence of distress is when we can learn that we can handle that distress, um, that that distress comes down. Um, So in the immediate short term, you don't really feel better, (laughs) which is part of, I think, why it can be um, a hard sell sometimes to tell somebody that this will help, because immediately um, it can be certainly more painful than the relief of avoiding it. Um, But in the long run, it doesn't have to be so far out. I mean, you you can feel the relief relatively Mm -hmm. soon. Um, But in the long run, absolutely it makes me feel better. It Mm -hmm. makes me feel less distressed because 
I don't have this like growing fear of Mm -hmm. that thing, whatever that thing represents for a person's life, whether that's fear of a particular situation or, or whatever it might be of an outcome. I don't have this like boogeyman who's like living under my bed, um, Mm -hmm. tormenting me and, and, and it's this, it's this sense of kind of, like you said, reclaiming your life and feeling some sense of mastery that, that you can handle things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super powerful. And so in that way, I think it absolutely does make you feel better. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you, you start to feel less fear when you're encountering these things. So, so yes, it was very hard initially to get to the parking garage. It was very hard initially to watch those videos. But I don't feel that huge level of distress anymore. So it actually... Mm-hmm. Um, it takes that away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, it was under your influence of the conversation we had last week that I did something of an exposure 60 oh, years really? after the fact of the incident. I was out in Corvallis, Oregon, um, conducting a review of an agency there um, because of a suicide that had taken place at this residential agency, and there, I was reviewing their risk management system. And I, um, it was eight miles away from where I grew up in Albany, Oregon. So I drove down to Albany and I was just driving around. I wasn't thinking about this, but I always get nostalgic when I go there because it was, it was a pretty great childhood unless I'm completely delusional. Um, and, uh, near my house, there was a cemetery and at the back of the cemetery, we used to, um, go sledding if there ever happened to be any snow, which was certainly not like it is in Massachusetts, but occasionally there'd be some snow. And we would go right to the back of the cemetery and, and take, we didn't all, all have sleds because it wasn't that usual. So we were sledding down on the hill on pieces of tin, pieces of metal that, that were in construction sites nearby. And uh, we would find them and then we would go there and I was going down, and I, I saw, when I was climbing back up the hill one day when I was about eight, um, someone was coming down the hill, probably one of my brothers or a friend, and uh, I jumped out of the way because it was coming right at me, but I didn't jump all out of the way. I left my hands down there, and it sliced my finger. Mm-hmm. And it sliced my finger and left it sort of semi-dangling part of it. I'm sorry for the gruesome mm-hmm. um, explanation, but... Um, and, and I went to a doc, it was a weekend day, and I went to a doctor that was in our neighborhood, and he supposedly sewed it up, but he didn't do a good job of it. Even today, it's weird. feels weird. I can feel the sensitivity of it. So I thought, you know, I'm still bothered by this. Whenever I think about it, even think about it, I put my fingers next to each other so that I'm, I'm cushioned, as, as if it's something's happening again. So I decided I'm going to that hill. And so I did. And I was thinking about you and I was thinking, here's 60 years later from what actually was not your kind of traumatic moment, but it was in a way uh, for a young boy to lose part of his figure at the time was pretty traumatic and uh, scary. And I went there and I sort of sat by the hill and I looked at it and I could really almost remember exactly what happened. And I, I, I don't know how much it'll change. It certainly isn't going to change what I've been avoiding. But even that... I felt good afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I felt all right. It's like I faced down the monster. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I di- I slayed the dragon or something like that. Like I can go back there to this hill. And I just was thinking, how many things there are like that in life. That's exactly it. I I, I love the way you put that. Slay the dragon. It's just this sense of that you can do it, um, mm-hmm. and it, it gives you this sense that you aren't being your life isn't being run by the trauma anymore, right. you are calling right. the shots. And I think that's just a really profound thing to learn. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and like you demonstrated, um, it can be many years later and these things still work. And at the same time, um, for people who are sort of, you know, wondering, oh, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't um, try this, I think that it's just this idea of the sooner you do it, the sooner you can benefit from it. And, mm-hmm. and that's really wonderful. Even there, though, as, as I think about now, what I didn't do was let my finger get sliced by another piece of tin. <laughs> so, well, that's okay. I mean, we don't need you to do that. <laughs> you don't need to do the whole thing again, but at least we no, the, the idea, scene and the memory. 
Exactly. We don't want you to have another trauma. That would be opposite of what we want. It's more like a marginal um, exposure than in in some ways than um, by going through it again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I really see. Is there any other uh, example? You said last week one that was very compelling to me was that when you went to a friend's house and she had a picture of Jackson on her refrigerator and she she felt bad that it was still up there. She as if she should have removed it and you. Yeah. must have already been in kind of like thinking, no, I don't want people to, I don't want to be hiding from this. So Yeah, and I think that's how this all kind of connects with social support, which mm. has been just this, um, it's this huge topic that I definitely want us to, to start the conversation on now. And um, I think what has been huge around social support is inviting others into this, journey of not avoiding. Mm. Um, and I think that, yes, I was, I was telling you, um, this story and, um, basically, um, to just to back up for a second, I think something I mentioned at the end of the last podcast, just to kind of frame this up is that, um, on the one hand, it's true that it shouldn't be the responsibility of a bereaved person, um, or a traumatized person to be in charge of telling others how to support them. It's sort of this idea of you're putting an unnecessary burden on that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, the other truth lies in our active participation in shaping our environment um, in that there is this transaction between the way others support us and the way we respond. And I mm-hmm. think that that has been something really interesting for me. So that goes back to this this story of basically I went over to my friend's house and this was probably, I want to say about two months after Jackson died or so. And we walked in, I'll, I'll never forget it. We walked into the, through the back where the kitchen is. And as soon as mm-hmm. the door opened, you know, we, we gave hugs and greeted our friends. And I immediately saw Jackson's photo from his second year birthday party mm-hmm. on her fridge. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause like I said, he died just after his second birthday party. So that was still mm-hmm. on her fridge. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I sort of immediately gravitated towards it. I, I, without even thinking, I think I just walked over. I, I placed, I just kind of like run my, my fingers across his face. And I, I'm sure I had probably some tears in my eyes. And anyways, my friend came running up and she just said, Oh my gosh, I'm so, so sorry. I didn't know whether I should leave that up or take it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment for me that it was so clear. It was this aha moment of, oh, of course. When people see me crying, they think that they've misstepped, that they've done something wrong. Nobody wants to make a bereaved parent cry. Um, right. and, and yet, what I really felt was true was that I wanted to talk about Jackson. I wanted to see that other people were thinking of him and honoring him. And it was really beautiful to walk in their home and see him so prominently featured in the middle mm. of their fridge. And mm. I thought to myself, okay, this is, this is that moment where we transact with our social support. And I realized in that moment that I had to be really explicit in really behaviorally communicating to people that I needed Jackson front and center, that Mm -hmm. I wanted to invite me in not avoiding. Um, And that was the moment I decided I was going to do a Christmas card actually, because Uh I wasn't originally planning to do one. And I thought, well, crap, I, I want his photo everywhere. Um, so I'm not only going to send a Christmas card this year, but instead of sending 50, I think I'm going to send like 150. And I actually oh tripled the size of our Christmas list because I realized how much I wanted people to know that that's what I needed. I mean, and on the Christmas card, can you tell me what you had on the card? Yes. I actually went through so many templates. It was a little painful actually looking through all those templates because you know how mm. Christmas cards can be with their messages. But um, I found the perfect one and it said a year to remember. And it was like a collage of 12 photo uh, oh. slots. And so I picked wow. 12 photos and I just had him there. And, and it was actually a really beautiful card. And um, I have to say, we actually included a letter where we told people um, that that that's what we really wanted was their participation in helping us remember Jackson this Christmas that mm. we wanted to talk about him. And we actually kicked off what we refer to as the kindness project, which we can talk about uh, today or more next you time. You kicked that off at the time of Christmas, the Christmas yes. card? Uh-huh. Yeah. So the Christmas card with mm-hmm. a letter and an invitation to participate in the kindness project, which was mm-hmm. basically spreading acts of kindness in honor of Jackson. And it was just this total invitation to other people to, 
to do that with us, to, to, mm. to have Jackson front and center. And, and it felt maybe, you know, obvious, but then suddenly not obvious. And that's why I really wanted to be explicit with it. Mm. Let me ask you this. As I listen to you, some of the things that you say that are particularly specific are touching, and I get tears in my eyes just listening to you. And I was thinking, did you find that in trying to steer your friends towards and invite them into not avoiding with you, did, did they have difficult feelings they had to cope with? Oh, I'm, I'm sure they did. And, and you know... I'm sure they did. Um, I think that the main fear that they were operating with was fear of saying the wrong thing, fear yeah. of hurting us, of, of, of doing something to make it worse. And, and I, I know that because I've been there. Before Jackson died, I can think back to times where I wasn't sure how to support someone or what to say or if to say. Right. And, and I, I, I recognize that sort of paralyzing fear where due to fear of saying something wrong, we say nothing. And I think something that I have learned definitely through this is that silence can be more painful than watching somebody stumble over clunky sentiments because no one expects that everyone has the perfect thing to say and there is no perfect thing to say. There's just this need to say something, say anything. Um, yeah. And... And I think that I've definitely learned that and looked back in my life at times where I wish I had known that. You know, I think um, I've, this has got me thinking about this, that how many people I've known that have gone through a tragedy or a trauma or an illness, maybe depression, maybe they had cancer, maybe they had some terrible thing happen in their family, maybe they did something that they were particularly embarrassed about, and then there's the trauma of going through that or the loss of going through that, depending what it is. And, and then there's the horrible trauma, if you want to call it that. I don't want to overuse the word, but um, the, the additional suffering brought about by the fact that people don't know what to say mm-hmm. and don't speak. And so you're left, I mean, you just think when you're one person who does that, you think, well, I just don't know what to say, but somebody else will be talking. But it turns out in some cases that I've known, whole groups of people have then kind of vanished from the scene who had been friends for years and years and years and somebody's left in a vacuum. And the vacuum itself, it seems to me, deprives the person of the opportunity of recovery mm-hmm. with those people mm-hmm. and with the help of those people. Absolutely. And, and I heard a lot of, you know, in the immediate aftermath of this, like, I want to give you space and um, just, just lots of, of things of, of retreat. And people yeah. doing it with the best intentions, not knowing, um, not knowing that that's not helpful. Mm. And again, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I can't speak for everybody who's been through something like this. But for me, I very much knew I did not want to be left alone. Mm-hmm. That's not what I needed. And so mm-hmm. that was part of this being really explicit and basically wanting to, to say exactly what I found helpful and didn't find helpful um, and help people because I knew, I knew because I've been in their shoes that it's not totally obvious what to do. Mm. Um, and so, you know, one thing I did, which I found helpful and I think was kind of a win-win for, for Brian and I and also for our support systems was to sort of, we wrote this sort of open letter. I wrote this open letter that was called like a note to my mama friends. So my friends that are mothers particularly. Mm. Um, and I wrote about this being really uncharted territory for us. At least for me, I had never obviously experienced anything like this. And it was an invitation to have them keep inviting me into their lives mm. and not let them go with this assumption that I wouldn't want to be around their kids because it's mm. too painful. Mm. Because the reality is, these things do occur. When I hang out with our friends who have toddlers, it can and does activate my loss. Um, it is both hard but also enjoyable and, and nurturing. Um, and mm-hmm. watching their kids grow up makes me both happy and long for Jackson. It's just introducing them to dialectical thinking, I think, has been huge for us. Um, and just mm-hmm. the overall message of you know, I accept these things for the greater goal of staying connected to you. Mm-hmm. So basically, willingness together to take missteps together in the service of staying connected. And I think have I think that that has been did, helpful. Did any of your mama friends have uh, tell you what their reactions were to getting that letter? 
Yes. Um, a lot of them reached out and were very, very grateful for, mm. for me basically addressing the elephant in the room. And I have to say, um, if, you know, behavioral evidence is a thing, I have invitations all the time to um, spend time with these families. Actually, almost every weekend, we mm. spend time with um, some families from our what we call our PEPS group. It's like a parenting support group when you give birth and you want to know other parents in a similar age and stage as your child. So mm-hmm. we've been close with them for two years and and we still spend almost every weekend we, we connect with these families. Um, yeah. I still connect with the with the teachers from his daycare. We've had them over for dinner. We do rock painting with painting memories of Jackson. Um, the other families from the daycare, I still get brunch with those moms and um, we're, we're really, really connected still with those people and I I think that's evidence that people appreciated being told exactly how we wanted to keep them in I our lives. They, I, my guess is they did. And, you know, I said earlier that uh, some people might not say anything and might er, appear to recede because they don't know what to say. But I think there's another reason people recede, which is that they're not comfortable, that they're yes. that it's upsetting to be around somebody who has had this happen. Um, yeah. It's even more so, I think. Um, and then people take their cues from that person. So mm-hmm. people back off from somebody who's going through a major depressive episode and they, um, cause they don't, cause they not only don't they know what to say and they don't feel that what they say is very helpful, but also they, then it activates their own painful feelings. Oh, and, of course. And they don't know what to do about. And so why, why add that to your, so people have rationalizations, I think, that are understandable where they say, well, then I think it, I think that person would be better off not to have me call. They'll, it'll just bother them when, in fact, they're sitting home alone, yeah. um, things like that. So I think that there's also that. And I think the fact that you indicated that you are interested in feedback, I mean, removes a lot of the trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't expect everyone to do that, but it seems like your mommy letter it's so great. It makes me think about the letter that became, I don't know if you know this letter. I, I'm, I just always assume everyone in the world knows this letter about, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Oh, I don't know this letter. You know that letter? You don't know that mm-hmm. letter. You can no. Google it sometime. But it's a letter that I, I knew growing up and, and later, um, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. It's sort of a way of answering the question uh, when kids ask, is there really a Santa Claus or is there no Santa Claus? And it's a beautiful letter about that, that then it informed a lot of people's thinking about how to respond to that, in, and I think some Hallmark movies. Um, but, um, but I think the, if people had a letter like that mm-hmm. available in a way, I could imagine this would be your Yes, Virginia letter or your, your, yeah. your, your, um, you know, my, your mommy letter um, mm-hmm. would be very helpful um, for a lot of people. I'd like a copy of it myself if you oh, ever send I'm it to me. Oh, I'm happy to share it with you. Because yeah. I now Absolutely. come across with people that I imagine could benefit from just the thinking in it. Yeah. No, and, and you say, this is such a good point, and, and it does make me want to add one thing, which is that I also am just so grateful um, for the social support network and community that I have, and in that so many of the people that I'm friends with are willing to put themselves alongside us on this journey. Mm. I think that, um, of course, um, a lot of people's inclination is to want to help. And like you said, sometimes they don't know what to say, but sometimes it's also just, it's too much. Um, you know, you were basically alluding to what I've heard termed as like mortality salience, but we are mm. sort of a reminder that children can die. Um, and, and it might be really painful to spend time with us and to watch us grieve Jackson and, and the wonderful mom friends and dad friends and non-parent friends that I have in my life have just been so willing in a, in a way that I'm so grateful for to, to go there, if that makes sense. And, and I think you're right about it is interesting to, to discover who kind of will and won't show up, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better term. And, um, and staying open to that has been, um, part of it. Um, you know, I will say, one of the hugest surprises for me, I don't know, I just, I can't imagine that I ever would have guessed that one of my best supports through this journey would actually be a woman that I have never met in person or talked to on the phone in person. 
So I have this very special pen pal connection, I guess, over email with another SUDC parent who actually lives on the other side of the country. So this is the one that, that lost a daughter like 20 years ago? Well, Laura Crandall okay. lost a daughter, yeah, a 15-month-old daughter, and she started the SUDC Foundation. Right, um, right. And this is actually another mom that I met because Laura Crandall created the oh, SUDC uh-huh. Foundation. I've connected with this yeah. mom, and she's um, also a psychologist, as so happens. Um, she's a mother of three, and she lost her middle son yeah. just about three months before Jackson. So similar timeline, and we've just forged this incredible friendship over email, like literally every two weeks or so, just these really, really really wonderful connecting emails. Um, and we've actually just booked a trip to go visit their family in September. And I just never would have thought in a million years wow. that I'd travel across the country to meet a total stranger. But that's yeah. the thing is she's not remotely a stranger anymore. She's become one of my closest friends. And I think that's been interesting. Again, staying mm-hmm. open to like, who are the people that you can feel close with on this journey? And Maybe it'll be people that you've never met who totally get your story, or maybe it will be people who live near you and are close to you and can't quite get it because how could they if they haven't experienced anything, but maybe something similar. You know, I've Mm -hmm. connected with mothers of stillborn babies or friends who lost parents or siblings to suicide, a colleague who lost two friends to gun violence. I mean, there's also this, this, serendipitous nature of just staying open and just seeing kind of who comes out of the woodworks and and then yeah. unfortunately accepting those who just aren't up for it, um, but inviting yeah. them anyway. Yeah, and there are the ones that aren't up for it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always, uh, and, and yet uh, you never know. And it, it's hard to maintain a non-judgmental frame of mind, I think, for a lot of people in that situation if somebody doesn't show up. Yeah. People tend to think, God, if this happened in reverse, I would do it for somebody. But and then somebody doesn't show up, and it becomes a judgment, and it's very, it 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 gets crusty that judgment, right. and it's very hard to break through. And sometimes, lo and behold, that person comes through later. Um, right. I had a a girlfriend from high school that when I went to a reunion, maybe a 40th reunion or something, said, "I'm so sorry, I did what I did." at New Year's, our senior year. And I thought, what did you do? And then I yeah. then I remembered. I suddenly remembered, yeah. And I thought, yeah, she should be saying she was sorry. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. had a crush on this girl, and we went out. <laughs> and uh, she agreed to be my date on New Year's Eve. And then we went out. But then she said she had to be in at midnight. And then I learned the next day that's because she was going out with another friend of mine at midnight. And I, I was so hurt um, at that point. But she came back, God, 40 years later and said, I'm so sorry. I've been thinking about this for 40 years. should never have done that. But, wow. Wow. So, yeah. And it felt good to yeah. have somebody acknowledge something even that many years later. So you never know who's going to approach you and say, I'm so sorry that I couldn't respond at the time. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. I like your attitude of trying, if you can, to keep your mind open to seeing who comes out of the woodwork and who doesn't, mm-hmm. um, and and not come to any swift conclusions about that. Yeah. Hey, do you want to, before we end, because we're almost at the end, do you, um, was there any follow-up other comment you wanted to make, or is it more that we should return to next time about this whole idea of shaping social support to help you? I I sort of think it's in a way, almost as important as anything else when it comes to helping people cope with bad things that happen in life. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, just to give a nod to the research for a second, it's one of the best predictors we have for who copes after trauma Mm. um, is social support. Um, And Mm. we know that for people with poor social support or or not having social support, um, that that is actually uh, puts them at great risk for developing PTSD. And so um, Mm. I just just think it's so important. And I, I hope what I what I'm hoping to accomplish here is, is share a little bit about the ways in which, you know, there are, there's only so much you can do about your social support to some extent, the mm-hmm. people you have in your life are the people you have in your life, and they're going to have the particular skill sets and experiences that they have and capacities that they have, but there is this way to be kind of active and, and shaping it and, and, you know, being explicit about what you need and and reinforcing it when it does come in a way that is helpful, um, making sure to reinforce, of course, and um, 
And I just think in inviting people in um, when they're afraid to pry is, um, is, is the takeaway that I have. And, and I'd love to talk more about the kindness project and the way that we included yes. other people in our healing uh, next week. So yeah, we'll, well, I think that, that that's going to be huge next week to talk about how you've worked to, I love the way you put it last week. You said to not let my suffering go to waste was yeah. an, also a motivation for doing the podcast, but also the kindness project, how to make meaning mm-hmm. out of it. So let's save that for next time, as well as any other follow-ups from this week. Um, and I want to invite anybody, if, if anybody wants to write me um, between now and next week, and I can also send it on to Natalia, um, any questions or comments about this podcast uh, or anything else you would like us to address next week. Uh, Okay, and my website's charlieswenson.com. Kind of easy to remember. Okay, <laughs> thank you, Natalia. Thank you so much. Thank you, Charlie. All right, have a good week. See you All next right. week. Bye-bye. Bye, bye, everybody. <laughs>